So tonight we will be in Psalm 79. Psalm 79. And after the length of Psalm 78, Psalms, which was 72 verses, Psalm 79 comes at a, uh, just a, a, a meager 13 verses, say refreshing break from the length of the uh, verses we've been dealing with. Uh, but the topic uh, of this psalm is, uh, is not easy and not light. So let us go now to uh, the Word of God, and you can find it on page 490 in the Pew Bible, Psalm 79. We'll read the entire psalm from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem. There was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. We turn sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors, the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Do you remember those books that were uh, popular years ago? Um, the worst case scenario books. They got real popular for a little bit. And there's these books that would tell you like what to do if like your car like goes off a cliff into a into into the river and like what to do in that case or what to do if you're out hiking and you're far from help and you get bit by a venomous snake or uh, just these very oddly specific but unlikely but that's what I call worst case scenario you know you're, you're out in the woods and you encounter a bear or, or, or a mountain lion what do you do you know and uh, well, this psalm is a worst-case scenario for Israel. I mean, bad things happen all the time in our fallen world. Sometimes bad things happen because the world is fallen and cursed, and we happen to live in that fallen world, and so we are caught up in the effects of the fall. Other times, bad things can happen as a direct consequence of our sin, or sometimes an indirect consequence. Now, it's interesting because there are people who will assume that every bad thing that happens uh, uh, happens for, uh, because of someone's sin, especially with someone they don't like, right? So there's kind of like, well, obviously God's judgment is on that guy, okay, because he's a bad guy and he did bad things and I don't like him. So obviously God is punishing him for his sins, 
But when it happens to me, well, then I'm Job, right? It's, ne- it's never because of my sin that God would bring discipline upon me or the people that I care about. Uh, and, so, um, and so we wrestle with this. Uh, and as faithful Christians who suffer at various times, uh, we may well wonder, you know, if we are suffering a particular hardship or affliction because of our sin, uh, and this is a discipline from the Lord, or because, like Job, we are undergoing a, a period of trial which is not the result of our sin. And so how do we know when we're dealing with that? Um, and, and if we realize that we are being disciplined by God, what do we do? What do we do in that case? Well, tonight the psalmist addresses the worst case scenario about what happens when not just a person, but in this case, the, the nation, the people of God, the Old Testament church, because of their flagrant and wicked sin, God has brought judgment upon them. And now they find themselves in the midst of ruins and exile. And so what do they do now that, they have, now that God's judgment has fallen upon them because of their sin? And if, and if we find ourselves in a similar situation, if the church find ourselves in a similar situation where we have sinned in, in, in similar ways against the Lord, if he brings judgment upon the church or upon us, what do we do? This is the worst case scenario for the people of God. And so uh, first we're going we're gonna to break this psalm up into three parts and, and we'll consider first in the first four verses the, uh, the psalmist's cry of horror. Uh, then secondly, uh, his call for help in verses 5 through 9. And then finally, his confidence in the covenant and his covenant God in verses 10 through 13. So first, let's take a look at the cry of horror from verses 1 through 4. And what the psalmist is doing here is he's essentially describing the problem. He's describing the scene like uh, a homicide uh, or a witness, you know, comes upon the scene and describes what happened. Well, I came upon the scene. There was blood everywhere and there's all this stuff. That's what's going on here. And he lays it out before us. The nations have inv- invaded Israel and destroyed the temple. Now, there was only one recorded moment like this in the history of Israel. And it is the destruction of the temple by Babylon in 586 B.C. You can read about this uh, when it occurs in two different places. First, in, uh, you can read about it in Chronicles, but also in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 1 through 21, where Babylon came and they laid siege to Jerusalem and they cut off the food supply in order to starve the city. The book of Lamentations also describes what went on in that time, saying that those who died by the sword were happier than the victims of hunger who were laid waste. To waste by the starvation that followed. Even the book of Lamentation says. Even the hands of compassionate mothers. Boiled their own children for food. As they were so starving. And in such wreckage. Uh, physically. Eventually the walls of the city were destroyed. And the king of Jerusalem. Sought to run away. But was captured and was brought back. And they brought all his sons in front of him and slaughtered his sons and then gouged out his eyes. So the last thing he would see was the end of his line as he 
was blind uh, and living in Babylon the rest of his days. Then they ransacked the temple, taking all its valuable treasures, the pieces that were too big to carry off, like the giant bronze pillars with the beautiful latticework and pomegranates. These gorgeous works of art were, were broken into pieces and carried off. Also, the bronze sea was taken, taken with it and broken into pieces. All the gold and silver was taken. The, the pieces that were used for incense and offerings and the, it were taken as well. The whole structure afterward was burned to the ground. And those who were not slaughtered were carried off except for the weakest and the poorest of the people. Those who were killed were left to rot in the sun to be eaten by the birds and the beasts of the field and the earth. Such was the slaughter that the psalmist says their blood was poured out like water and there was no one left to bury the dead, which was the final dishonor. Israel, who had once lived as a center of power under David and Solomon and glory and wealth, now laid in ruins. Now they're a joke, a punchline to the surrounding Gentile nations. And what occurred here was nothing less than what we can call the uncreation of Israel. What is described here is, as I said earlier, the worst case scenario. Israel had fought and conquered the nations as they came uh, came in uh, and possessed the land under Joshua. They eventually built Jerusalem and the temple uh, described in detail. Uh, in First Kings by Solomon. And now piece by piece, Israel has now been torn apart. The beautiful artistry that went into the temple is gone. The safety of Jerusalem's walls is no more. Even more, the temple that it had been the place of, uh, of Israel's uh, overconfidence that they would always be there. Because the Lord's temple was there. Even if we disobey, the Lord has put his temple here. And he will not let his temple fall. In Jeremiah's day, there was a saying, we have the temple, we have the temple, we have the temple. And, and Jeremiah said, stop saying that. Because the Lord has said, I do not need a temple. And I have destroyed the place uh, where you used to meet with me back at Shiloh, and I will do the same thing again if you do not listen. And they did not listen. No matter how many times they had broken the law, no matter how many times the prophets had corrected them, they thought they would never fall because the temple was there. But God had warned them to stop putting their hope in a physical building. Because he doesn't need it. And if he needs to destroy it to get Israel's attention, well, then that's just what he'll do. And that is what has happened. The place where God would dwell with his people was gone. And this wasn't just business, as people would like to say. This was personal. The psalmist's horror is spoken as on God's behalf. Israel is your inheritance, he said. The temple was your temple. The, the dead were your servants and faithful ones. 
and now they're gone. Everything is gone, and Israel is a bitter joke to their rivals. And so here the writer is simply giving a summary of what has happened. He's giving the state of affairs, an inventory of awfulness. And look, there are times in the church where we can look where the church is laid to waste and ruin because of its own internal problems or external issues. There's times where our own lives may be laid to ruin because of sin. Again, we're dealing with the worst case scenario. You think about if a, nat- you know, if a natural disaster strikes. I know we've got some Katrina survivors <laughs> here. What do you do? You can't put your head in a hole even though you'd like to. You have to take stock. You've got to open your eyes and see what the wreckage is. Is there anything left to salvage? Is there anything left of the house? What needs to be done? What needs to be gutted? However bad and awful it is, you have to take stock of what the actual needs are in order to move forward. Here is a guy with a little time between the actual event, obviously, because he says, how long, O Lord? Spend some time. And so there's a time between when it happened and the writing of this song, and he's able to reflect on what occurred that day when Babylon came knocking. Now, technically, this was the second time Babylon had come knocking. Babylon came just a few years before that uh, to remind Israel that, or the southern kingdom, Judah, that they were a vassal state and they needed to remember that and they needed to toe the line and pay the fees, pay the tribute. Uh, but their king was not very wise and decided to rebel a short time later. So this time Babylon came and said, okay, now we're here to finish the job. And so taking stock of what happened, the psalmist now turns to his plea. He moves from uh, his initial cry of horror to the call for help in verses 5 through 9. And this call, this call for help is also what we could call the cry of a perplexed faith. It is a cry of perplexed faith. This is one of many psalms, I think roughly 20 of them, that, uh, that asks the question, How long, O Lord? But we have to be clear that this question is not a question of anger towards God. Kind of a how dare you question to the Lord. It's rather a question of how long, God, will your righteous judgment last? How long will your anger burn upon your people who deserve it? The psalmist knows why all of this happened. This is the righteous judgment of the Lord. And this brings us back to that problem that that I talked about in the introduction, which is how do we know when a calamity is God's judgment against us for our sin or someone else's or we're just experiencing something because of someone else's sin or because we live in a fallen world? And I ask this because there's a sense in the modern evangelical church that God always and only blesses us and somehow his only involvement in our hardships is just to make things better. Now, one thing I want to be careful here is that we need to be sure not to uh, develop an irrational fear of God whenever, like, let's say my car doesn't start in the morning, that I'm like, what did I do? You know, that kind of thing, where I'm just like, all of a sudden, something small occurred, and God, what are you mad at me about? And we start, you know, you get into this, you know, this kind of fearful, kind of irrational fretting, uh, you know, because we took 
oh, I had the harsh tone on the phone with a friend three weeks ago and God's making my car not start because of that. No. Okay. Because the book of Job is also clear that bad things can happen through no fault of our own. Sometimes God will bring us into a period of testing by his sovereign, we like to call it a hard providence of the Lord. Well, it is true, but in this case, the psalmist knows exactly who has brought this destruction upon Israel, and he knows why. The Lord God has done it, and he has done it because of the sin of Israel. Because this judgment came after prophet after prophet came and warned the people against their sin and their idolatry. The word of God testified against them. They had violated the word of God. And so in this we find an instructive point. If we are in flagrant sin, sin such that leaders in the church have warned us, they've admonished us, they've even brought us under discipline of the church, but we've shrugged it off, we walked away. I'll show those church because I mean in the American church, you know, it used to be back in the day, I mean, you you could only go to one church because that was the only church in the city. Like if you didn't go to that church, there was no other church to go to. But that's not the case now. You throw a rock, you have three churches, especially in the South, right? So it's like, well, they don't like me at that church. Well, I'm going to go over to this church. You know, and it's like, I'm going to go over here, right? That's the kind of uh, market that we live in now. We have a market of churches now. And so, and so, but people just go off, all right? If the church, but, but it's just, but if, if, if the church has righteously come down upon me, not in just harsh, you know, you know, just condemnation, but said, hey, you're in sin. You need to repent about this. This is going to destroy you. You are on a bad path. And we refuse. We don't, we don't repent. Even if the church, if you go to the church, if the church abandons the word of God, the church follows its own way, the, the elders embrace sin and say, no, it's fine now. Even though the word of God says otherwise, then we ought not be surprised when divine judgment falls upon us, usually in consequences of that sin. I mean, think about Israel. It wasn't lightning that struck them all. God brought another bigger, stronger nation into Israel. I mean, to some degree, you would say, well, isn't that kind of like the normal course of events for one nation to take over another nation in that ancient world? And sometimes you'd be like, yeah, that seems kind of normal. So yeah, so God used what we might call a normal means, another nation, to execute his judgment on his own people, just as he had used Israel to execute judgment on the Canaanites when they took the land. God uses normal means all the time. Now, and so my point here is that is this, is that if we have a hardship that's come upon us, all right, we have an affliction that's come upon us, and we, and we step back and ask ourselves, okay, am I in sin? Look, at this point, what I'm talking about is not like some hidden, secret, deep sin that you're not even aware of. The stuff we're talking about here is obvious. It's like in the Big Ten commandments you know what i mean like it's in it's in the ones like you know it people have talked to you about it confronted you about it it's in the back of your mind you know it's there but you're just avoiding it you don't want to deal with it you don't want to repent you don't want like that's that's the type of stuff we're talking about here we're not talking about something that's like you know off in the distance that we don't really know about or secret down that we need to soul search for i give you an example um 
the, the pastor who gave, my, gave me my charge in our presbytery, so, so, uh, so our presbytery is the, is the, uh, is the geographic district of the, here in central Mississippi called Mississippi Valley, uh, and what they do is they'll take candidates for ministry who want, and they test them. And so they have to, and so the presbytery, the individual churches will call these guys for, to be candidates and call them to be pastors. But the presbytery approves of them. This is that's a gathering of the elders in the of the area churches. And so what happens is, is that when uh, as a candidate you come, you give your profession of faith, um, and you give your sense of call um, uh, to ministry, and you basically you're saying, I would like to be tested for the ministry. And then you enter into a period of testing that lasts usually from one to two years. Well, uh, the the man who is the head of our credentials committee. Who, uh, and uh, gave me my charge as a uh, as as a candidate for ministry, right? not in, not getting ordained, but just starting out. Well, within a year and a half to two years, that same man was excommunicated from the church. The presbytery excommunicated him because uh, he was an unrepentant adulterer. He was in a relationship with a woman that was not his wife. In his church, she was married and had three kids. He was married, had three kids, and he wouldn't give it up. And so he left the church, he left his wife and his kids to go be with this woman. She did the same to her family. And then in the end, she broke up with him. And I can only imagine what it must have been for him to look around at that moment and to see the 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 wreckage of his career, his family, and the one thing he did it all for, gone. That's what I'm talking about. And make no mistake, he had been warned. He had been pleaded with. He had been admonished. He had been rebuked. But he hardened his heart and he turned away. That's the stuff we're talking about here. The worst case scenario. Now, by God's grace, there is still a way back to that. And I pray that he takes it. It's the way back for any Christian. Repentance and faith. And I pray that he takes it. I don't know where he is. I don't know what he's up to now, but I pray that he takes it. All of this is to say that the psalmist is not rebuking God for bringing the judgment down that Israel deserved. But he also has the promises of the covenant in view that God made with Abraham, with Moses, and with David. And so he asks, how long will God's anger burn now that he has accomplished his righteous judgment? Now that he has done what he swore that he would do? Now what? And so he turns to God now and he pleads for both justice and mercy in verses 6 through 9. It might seem odd, given the circumstances, for the psalmist to ask for God's wrath to come down on the other nations uh, who were acting like a sort of divine judgment against them. But uh, actually what's interesting is, I didn't know this, um, but verse 6 of this psalm is, uh, brings Israel back to the, the exodus uh, because it was this wrath that delivered Israel from the power of Egypt. Verse 6 of this psalm is quoted by the Jews even today as they enter the house to celebrate their Seder service or their Passover meal. 
May your wrath be poured out upon the nations who do not know you. The nations did terrible things to Israel. Babylon. And they deserved punishment from God for it. This was actually prophesied about in the book of Habakkuk, where the Lord said that he was bringing the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, against Israel as judgment. And when the prophet protested, and that's when he said, like, look, I said we were bad, but we're not that bad. We're not Babylon bad. And God said, I promise you that once I have used them to punish your you, then I will punish them too. Which is a bit of a cold comfort to some degree. But it was what God had said. And this is what Habakkuk said in chapter 3, verse 2. O Lord, I have heard... Now just bear in mind, he has just heard this. That Babylon's coming to destroy them. He complained to God about the wickedness of Babylon. And God says, well, I'm going to de- destroy them too. I'm going to judge them too after I judge you. He says, I have heard the report of you. And your work, O Lord, do I fear. I am afraid of what you're about to do. But he doesn't, he doesn't go after God for it because he knows God is right to do it. And so the psalmist prays here for what God has promised. Justice upon the nations, especially the ones who have devastated Israel in these recent days. But the prophet, the prophet Habakkuk prayed something else. He said, Lord, in that same verse, he said, Lord, In your wrath, remember mercy. Lord, in your wrath, remember mercy. The psalmist prays that the Lord would not remember the sins of the past. He he feels the weight of the nation's sins. And in the devastation, he does the only thing that he can do, which is to cry out to God for mercy. He prays for help. From the God of our salvation. He prays for God to search out. And to pay the price. For the debt of the sin. His people owe. He is praying for God to do what Israel can't. To redeem them. From their sin. And ultimately. He appeals to the glory. And the namesake of God. The mercy of God. Is a glory. We must recognize the mercy of God is a glory he receives beyond the glory of his justice. For God must be just because he cannot be, but he is not required to be merciful. Yet he is because he is compassionate as well, but he is not required to be so. And there is a greater glory and he loves to be merciful And so in appealing to the glory of God, the the writer pleads for for the deliverance of his people. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, I must ask you, has he not done this? Has he not accomplished what the author asks in Jesus? Is this not of, of, of what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11? Where Christ humbled himself to death on the cross for our sin. And what was the result? That we were redeemed by faith in his name. And that Christ is exalted to the highest place and given the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus Christ every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To what? 
to the glory of God the Father. In Jesus, the prayers of the psalmist are answered, truly and fully. Now, I would certainly pray that any of us here today, anyone who would listen to this sermon, would never find themselves in the kind of ruin that is described here as a result of sin. Let's be honest. It happens. It happens. I would pray this for every Christian church, that every church would would be able to avoid the, the spiritual ruin and the actual ruin of a church. But I mean, go, go read the, the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. The only two churches that don't get criticized by Jesus in those seven letters are the ones being heavily persecuted. All the others, Jesus says, I'm going to come remove your lampstand. He threatens judgment for all of them. if They don't repent. But the good news is that even if we find ourselves in such a position here where we are in the ruin of our lives, ruin as a church, that there is hope because redemption does not depend upon us. All our hope is laid upon Christ. Christ who is our Redeemer, our Savior, the one who restores us from our sins. I mean, that line, I just say, it haunts me from Habakkuk. In your wrath, remember mercy. I mean, that's just a hands up like, you got me. I'm guilty, no more hiding. It's all laid bare. It's public. It's obvious. I mean, I remember the church I interned at. I interned at. I mean, my, my internship was crazy. And so my first internship, we had a pastor and we had five ruling elders and things were going okay. And then a year later, we had no pastor, two ruling elders, because two resigned and one was a registered sex offender. And then the church had a split. That was my internship. And I'm the intern and I got people coming to me like, you got to save this church. I'm like, "Mm -mm, nope, 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 not my job, not my job, right? But I also had people coming up to me going... What do we do? It's a small town. Everybody knows our business. We were humiliated. Our church was exposed as this infighting, all this ugly nastiness, all this gross stuff came out, and all this fighting, all that, all that garbage. I'm just like, we can take heart that it can't get worse. And we can hope in Jesus. And when I got licensed to preach, that was my job for the rest of my time there, was to give them hope in Christ, that he would come, that he would rebuild, that he would redeem, because he will. But sometimes it takes God wrecking us and even our lives to get us to the point where we will throw our hands up and say, God, in your wrath, remember mercy. This brings us to the final part of the psalm, which is the psalmist's confidence in the covenant in verses 10 through 13. There's a confidence in two things here. First of all, the confidence and trust that God will do what is right. The psalmist prays for the blood of his servants to bear the testimony of judgment against the enemies of Israel and God. 
That like just as the blood of Abel cried up from the ground, that the blood of, of the Israelites, of God's people, would also cry out for justice and that God would listen. The psalmist also prays that those who were not killed uh, but remained in captivity would uh, I mean, the, the, the fate of captives was always uncertain. You didn't know if you're getting marched off to Babylon, if you're going to be made a slave or just slaughtered once you got there. A lot of times they did both. They would parade all the prisoners in, look how great we are, how great we are, and bring them in. They'd be like, all right, take, take those off over there and execute them, and the rest of you, you are now slaves. You know, that was it. Those are your options. And so he prays for them. He probably is among them. He prays for their groans to be heard, for God to preserve them. And bear in mind that they're going to groan for many decades to come before the restoration. He prays for the arrogant taunts and evil to be returned, and perfect wrath, sevenfold wrath against the enemies. Something also which we mentioned earlier, God had prophesied, and in time he will do to Babylon. Because while Babylon was the sword of God's judgment for the moment, the nation itself was wicked and railed against God and taunted the Lord and reveled in its own idolatry. And God would humble Babylon, to be sure. God will do what is right. We can trust that. He will take care of the enemies who have done evil to us. But finally, the second aspect of the psalmist's confidence is covenant confidence is that God will restore. The psalmist knows that while they may be standing in the ruins for the moment, that in the future they will rejoice. He knows the pain and the darkness of the moment will give way to brighter days. And this isn't just a blind hope that that in time all wounds heal or that things will just get better on their own. It's because even in the exile... He knows we are still the people of God. He refers to himself in the final verse there. It's the people. We are his sheep. He is our shepherd. We shall not want, even in Babylon. We're not in green pastures today. We're in the valley of the shadow of death right now. But our shepherd is near us with his rod and his staff. To guide and guard us, even in these dark, dark days. And one day he will make a table for us in the presence of our enemies and overflow our cups with blessing. But even now, even in exile in Babylon, God's covenant goodness and mercy are pursuing us, chasing after us, even in the ruins. And so while they may they may sorrow, and sorrow may last for the night. His joy comes with the morning. And the people of God will in due time give thanks to the Lord forever. And generation after generation will recount the praises of the Lord. Been saying it, say it again. This is a worst case scenario. In case of fire, break glass type of song. There are many reasons that bad things happen in our lives, but today we're dealing with the worst reason. Unrepentant, arrogant, willful, egregious, flagrant sin against God. 
where I know I'm violating the Word of God and I don't care. Where we are, we've ridden that, we've gone down that path so far that now our lives have been brought down around our ears. The consequences of our sin are real and devastating and have gotten our attention. And so what do we do now? Well, the psalmist says, cry out to God. Cry out in horror because of the sin and devastation. Pray for justice and mercy. Turn to Christ in repentance and faith. And we trust that even while we or even our church may be brought low for a time, it will not be forever. Only God's glory and praise are forever. And we will trust in Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that even in the absolute worst, when, when Your people have been their worst, when the church has been at its worst, and You have even brought uh, temporal judgments upon us, upon Your church, even there You do not abandon us. Rather, you bring us to our knees that we may cry out for redemption and forgiveness. And then you remind us that not only are you the Holy One, but you are the Holy One who forgives sin and restores his people. And so, Lord, we do pray that we would never, any of us, be brought to that point where we are in that ruin. But Lord, should we find ourselves there, may we not despair of hope, but may we lift our eyes up to the cross and we see our Savior who has died and paid the price for our sins and has been raised for our life and place our trust in Him again. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.